So we're going to start the evening with the triple B. Triple B. Blessed bliss balls. So everybody has to say that five times fast. Blessed bliss balls. Blessed bliss balls. Blessed bliss balls. And they're being passed around right now to uh, fill your stomach even more while we, um, we play a few numbers for you. And we have a guest musician here tonight. This is uh, Richard Hill. He's the uh, owner of the lodge. And... Uh, and uh, he has been very gracious for many years to let us continue our great uh, retreat here, being very gracious to let us totally destroy his whole room here. Yeah, and uh, so here we are. And he wanted a quick initiation, so I told him I could initiate him. So I did that downstairs already. <laughs> okay, so he's ready to go. All right, so we're going to start with a few songs, and as I said, we'll get serious as the day goes on, or the night goes on, sort of. It all depends. It's just going to flow. It's going to flow. But don't forget your blessed bliss ball. Very important. And you can sing along. Just follow the bouncing ball. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Steve. All right. So singing along is highly encouraged. And I'm sure uh, Norma's looking down right now, appreciating this. This first song is definitely in the spirit of Master Kripal's constant reminder to go jolly. This is called Keep on the Sunny Side. There's a dark and troubled side of life. There's a bright, there's a sunny side too. Though we meet with the darkness and strife, the sunny side we also may view. Keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side of life. It will help us every day, it will brighten all the way. If we keep on the sunny side of life The storm and its fury broke today Crushing hopes that we cherish so dear Clouds and storms will in time pass away The sun again will shine bright and clear Keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side of life. It will help us every day, it will brighten all the way. If we keep on the sunny side of life, let us greet with the song of hope each day. Though the moment be cloudy or fair. Let us trust in our Savior today, who keeps everyone in his care. Keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side of life. It will help us every day, it will brighten all the way. If we keep on the sunny side of life If anybody wants to join in, we'll do the chorus one last time Keep on the 
the sunny side, always on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side of life. It will help us every day. It will brighten all the way if we keep on the sunny side of life. If we keep on the sunny side of life. All right. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> okay. Here's another good old time spiritual. Let's see if everybody remembers this one or not. On the wings of a snow-white dove, he sends his pure, sweet love, a sign from above. On the wings of a dove, when troubles surround us, when evils come, the body grows weak, the spirit grows numb. When these things beset us, he doesn't forget us, he sends down his love on the wings of a dove. On the wings of a snow-white dove, he sends his pure, sweet love, a sign from above. On the wings of a dove, when Noah had drifted on the flood many days, he searched for land in various ways. Troubles he had some, but wasn't forgotten. He sent him his love on the wings of a dove, on the wings of a snow-white dove. Sends his pure, sweet love, a sign from above. On the wings of a dove, on the wings of a snow-white dove, he sends his pure, sweet love, a sign from above. On the wings of a dove. On the wings of a dove On the wings of a dove I want so aimless life filled with sin I wouldn't let my dear Savior in He came like a stranger
for my own Then like the blind man that God gave back his sight Praise the Lord, I saw the light I saw the light, I saw the light No more darkness, no more night Now I'm so happy, no sorrow inside Astray. Straight's the gate and narrow the way. Now I have traded the wrong for the right. Everybody, praise the Lord. I saw the light. I saw the light. I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Out in the dark, I'm gonna let it shine. Out in the dark, I'm gonna let it shine. Out in the dark, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, 
I'm gonna let it shine This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine 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 All right Amazing Grace Great. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful, and we're going to end off with Norma's favorite song that I'm sure everybody knows. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear The hour I first believed Amazing grace, how sweet the sound That saved a wretch like me I once was lost, but now I'm found. Twas blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already become. Twas grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I 
So we're going to play a video now, and um, rather than, that's a tough act to follow, so we'll just start with the video. It's self-explanatory. It's about the St. Bonnie School in New Hampshire. We played a preliminary edit of this movie five years ago. This is the final thing. I had the privilege of being one of the individuals that helped put it together. Anyway, I'll say more about it at the end. Look at our setting. How could you have a setting that is, is more spiritual and wonderful than where we are? Right in the midst of nature and where, where you feel that connection. The, the essence of one. You are one here with everybody who is here and everything that is around us. I drive in that drive and I just feel I'm home. I'm just home. There truly is something here that's different and the kids pick up on it and can become aware of it. I think subliminally they're aware of it. It does infuse the life here. It does infuse the school day and um, all you have to do is just tune into a little bit. I think it's what visitors to the school often pick up on. There's an extra dimension here. For many, many years, visitors would almost invariably ask, tell me what's unique about St. Bonnie. What's special about the St. Bonnie School? And I would begin by saying, well, let me tell you what the St. Bonnie School does that any school should do. We are a place where students are engaged vigorously in academics. 
They are not memorizing facts, although that does have to happen, but they are engaged with learning in such a way that they're exploring. Uh, They are finding different routes to the answer. They are engaged in the arts. They are engaged in drama. They're very involved in sports. We're a tiny little school, and yet we've won state championships in something like cross-country running. So we are involved in academics, the arts, athletics, service, as any good school should be. I think every uh, life-term teacher has a dream somewhere along the way that they would like to do their own school. I certainly felt that way because every time I went to a new school, I hoped that I would find the place, the magical place, and it just never happened. And then I came here. And I just felt like I had died and gone to heaven because it was the school that if I had been creating a school, I would have created this school. very first year I realized that this was a good place for me to, to grow all those really hardcore values, integrity and you know the spirituality. Those were things that I was like, okay, this is a place that I can actually work on this part of myself too, where I can really work on those deep-seated values, inner values, you know, the things that really make you who you want to be when it's your time to pass on. I think there are some core values that we have had the opportunity to instill in them in a way that you couldn't if you had 30 kids in a classroom and you were a great big school of 1,200 kids. And I think as different as we are as a faculty, we have that opportunity because that's the thing we hold in common. There are some really interesting values here that you'd have to be blind not to be immersed in and not to understand. Being in touch with who you are, what you care about, what makes you feel alive, and living that way and having that counterbalanced with collaboration. And that means working with other people, helping other people, the community service projects, the morning session together, the art blocks, the, the getting to know the teachers, having them learn from you, you learn from them. There's a relationship there. It's a lot about respect, and as much as you can give to the kids, they give tenfold back to you. And when you've got that... You can teach, they teach you. The sense of humor, I mean, I don't know what you saw, but I get as much back from them as they would ever, ever get from me. And that's what I, that's what I see, that's why I'm here. That's why my three children are here. It's obvious that the Sambani community has a way of, of making mature young men and women who leave the school. Um, part of that, you know, having a first name basis for the teachers. They see us as people, as individuals, and they don't, um, we're regarded as, yes, they're teachers and hopefully sometimes they're mentors, but I think we're also seen as, as people. All of my teachers are some of my best friends. I know I'll be emailing them throughout college, and I just feel like a sense of trust with pretty much every teacher I've ever had here. I happened to cross a wonderful quote by Henry David Thoreau 
in which he commented in his journal something to the effect that too often education tries to make a straight-cut ditch out of a meandering brook. And I just, I think that's a wonderful quote. I could never predict when I walk around the school what I'm going to see. If I were to take someone on a tour of the school, I couldn't say when we walk into this building, here's what we'll see going on. The fact is that a lot of times things are happening in unexpected ways, and I think that is part of the beauty of it. And I think it's also part of our connection with reality. This is how the world really works. The chaos theory, you know, really operates well here. <laughs> That's what life is. And somehow Sampani has managed to create, you know, this community. And a community is, in a way, you know, this group that, you know, has all these different agendas and all these different things going on. And somehow they all get to be important. And they all get to be validated. And when you create that kind of environment, all kinds of unbelievable things can happen. I can teach pretty much anything I want. I am never told um, I cannot do it this way. You know, I have to do it somebody else's way. And um, and how much more um, enjoyment can you have with a job to be able to do <laughs> what you want to do? It's not that my workload's lighter here. It's that I am more intellectually engaged. I don't repeat myself. I'm not doing the same thing year after year. I can restructure the courses that I teach. If something doesn't go well, I can say we're doing it differently next year. And there's nobody's going to say I can't. It's so good. And you know, if you give people that, that responsibility, they step up to the plate. One of the wonderful things about morning session at San Pani is that the community gets together. They sit on the floor each in their own spot, but faculty are also sitting on the floor. Uh, announcements are made. There's a sense of, here's what we need to do today, a sense of collaboration. Then we have some kind of a shared uh, presentation, oftentimes spiritual, not always, usually about growth one way or another. And then we take our moment of quiet. This is a time when we can all sit together, and yet as we close our eyes, we can be alone within ourselves. So we're together, alone, and together. And at the end of the moment of quiet, it's like popcorn going up. Everybody gets up and leaves and goes about their busy day. If you're a student here, you can't really slip through the cracks, which probably from a teenager's point of view is rather annoying, but at the same time, you I mean, it's almost like everyone's looking out for you, so you're connecting with a lot of people, and I think that is what is the difference. You just can't get lost in that because you're being treated as a member of the family, so everyone's here to help each other out. I start out the year by saying, because you're all at different levels, you will not be evaluated against each other. You will be evaluated in your own personal growth. Some of them you know, are fairly concrete, and they want to know, well, what the, is that? And I say, we're going to have to figure that out together as you go along. And I'll be letting you in on that all the time. So my suggestion would be you strive. <laughs>
The school definitely drives the notion that you need to think for yourself. You need to you need to step outside the box and say, "Wait a minute, is that you know is that really what I think about that?" And even in class, uh, it's okay to disagree with the teacher sometimes because that's what you need to do. You need to step outside, you know, the confines of what is set in stone, and you need to question that and you know develop a sense of what it is for yourself. And that's definitely helped me, you know, form who I am. In the comparative religions class, we talk about Christianity, uh, Taoism, Buddhism, Hinduism, um, Islam. It's, I mean, you, you study all of them and without looking at one as the right way. And that way you keep an open mind and you learn the important things and the, the helpful things and the, the great things about each of those religions. And then you can sort of, again, put them through your filters and, and do what you want with it. I think that people here get in touch with who they are, what they care about. They learn to relate to other people. They learn to see themselves in the broader context of other religions, other cultures, other countries. They learn humility. They don't learn humility. They're just immersed in humility, you know? It doesn't occur to you to think that you're better than other people when you're constantly learning from them. The Lower Building Museum, they focus on a topic. Um, This year it was... South America, and they learn all kinds of things about it, and then on an evening, they have an open house, they, they redo the whole place. The s- students act as guides, and each little first, second grader has a presentation to do. <laughs> it's quite impressive. No, it's not. And this is Sopadilla tree. We sure love our sports, tremendously, through running, skiing, soccer, field hockey, basketball. We pretty much do a lot, and we have a lot of very talented athletes. Safani is a small school, but we're big in sports. If the kid has enough guts to go out for the team, they're going to be on that team if they show up for practice and give it their all. We don't care how slow they run. We don't care how far they can kick the ball. I mean, we, we've in cross-country, we've gone to New England. It's as far as you can go with a school body of 52. And I'll tell you, it's not because of my coaching. It's because of the kids' commitment in the summer. It's the kids' commitment to each other. That's a tight bond that you can get when you've got respect, when you've got this underlying feeling of loyalty. It's just they've got the mind of an athlete in terms of, I'm going to do discipline. I'm going to be the best that I can be. The whole service thing with the school, I mean, a lot of kids, they might initially grumble at that, but kids are kids and they mature into adults, and even the seniors start to see that, boy, that really did feel good. Yeah, that really does come around. Even if I don't get something material out of it, I'm feeling good about seeing that old lady's wood piled up. You know, there's a lot to it. Simply more than just service hours, and that's what they check off. But by the time they're juniors and seniors, they've reached this maturity level, it's second nature really is. One of the foundation pieces of the school is service, and a way to demonstrate that service is to serve our community, and by admitting students that couldn't ordinarily afford independent school education, we're serving our community and giving them a very, very fine quality education, fine quality both in the sense of the something special that happens here, but also uh, students have been accepted at some of the most prestigious, interesting colleges in the country. Service to others is a, is a very, very important part of what 
the Sanpani school does because it is a way for people to step outside of themselves. And I think one of the very important lessons that we need to teach our students, and just as importantly ourselves, is that if this planet is to have a future, we all need to learn to be stepping outside of ourselves. Recently someone commented that Sanpani isn't a religious school, but it's a deeply spiritual school. And I think that's a great way to say it because we have students here and families here from just a myriad of cultures, religions, backgrounds, doesn't matter. They can be deeply committed to their religion, they can be atheists, but they are treated as we see them, which is as individuals who are part of a community, as individual sparks, all adding toward the one fire. Really, the, the guiding document of the school towards the new education opens this up to a much wider field. It's very a non-sectarian piece, and it talks about spirituality as being fellowship, being service for all, courtesy, all these elements contributing to it. And these are really the things that are lived out on a daily life here. It really does permeate the atmosphere. I don't think the school comes from the vision of one person who imposed it on the school and developed it. I think it's the vision of really everybody who's involved with it that contributes to it and makes it happen. And I think that's one of the things that will help to keep it going in the future, that this is a shared vision that everyone has and contributes to and really has a stake in. is it's about the students, it's about the individual. I think each individual gets a chance to shine again, um, even though they've had the opportunity throughout their experience at San Bonnie to be an individual. This is it. This is the chance to say goodbye and thank you and I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I am so proud of these kids and what they've become what they're doing with their lives. I mean, they are so far ahead of the game from what I was in high school. It just, it blows me away. Funny little freckled, bespeckled kids that are now Olympians, doctors, lawyers, doing everything that they can to help. It just blows me away. And if you can help one child to you know, um, reach out and help somebody, that changes the world in my mind. Even if it's just one child.
when I was at the Unity of Man conference, where Russell was also present, and he's been talking about that, Kent Bicknell was also there, and we were both young men at that time. And on the flight home, he was on the same flight with me, and we got introduced and got to talking and established a close friendship that has um, remained. And I've always had a warm spot for the school in my heart. And there came a time when I started telling Ken, I said, you guys need a video. (laughs) And I said, well, I have a camera. I'll come back there. We'll just figure it out. I'm the type of person that really likes to watch the portion of the video that shows how the video was made. It's always so fascinating seeing the the behind-the-scenes thing. And this video has such a story. When I finally committed to go and film it, which I'd never done before, I've done little marketing videos professionally, but I was... um, took a Ken Burns video with me and my computer and I was studying it on the plane as I was (laughs) flying back there and making notes like, oh, I see how he does that. And I told Ken, I said, I need an assistant. I just can't do this by myself. So he says, oh, there's a technical senior that I can give you, but he's going to be going through final exams. And so he may not um, have, you may not have him all the time. Well, it turned out to be this young guy, his fellow, his name was Kai, and he was incredibly gifted um, using the, the editing software and also filming. And we sent the camera back um, before I arrived so he could, before school ended, he could get some of the candid classroom shots. And then he and I did many of the other shots together, and we're out in the rain and the pond. He's holding umbrella, <laughs> one shot after another. And... Then came the time to edit it, and my son, who works at an advertising agency, they donated this editing suite in San Francisco for five days. We had the access code. We could come and go anytime, day or night. We put in five 12-hour days, and there were times when I had to kick Kent out because (laughs) I was like, wait a minute. Let me just work on this for a minute, and then you can give me your instrument. And it was just such a creative process And Kai turned out to be a whiz in Final Cut Pro. And so we'd collaborate. And he went on to be accepted to one of the best film schools after his graduation. And he just recently graduated. And this issue, which I have, this is the Trumpet of the Swan, which is the the magazine for the school. And this issue is a, a brief article about him. He just graduated, and he made for his senior thesis a film that won in the school all kinds of awards, including Best Project of the Year. The kid is really, really talented, and we just had a great time working on this film together. And there was something about it that when we were editing it, in those five days, I always had this idea that we needed an announcer that would say something during the transitions from one part of the film to the next part of the film, because that's the way Ken Burns does it, right? So that's the way I had to do it. And because we didn't have an announcer, we didn't have a script, we didn't have any time. About the end of the second day, this insight came is, what if everything you hear in this movie is just extemporaneously spoken? It's just portions of the soundtrack from the interviews. And that was one of those things where 
It was like a forced creative constraint that turned out to be incredible because part of the reason this film is so engaging is these are all people that were being filmed and being engaged in a dialogue about a subject that was very dear to them. And you can just feel in their voice their enthusiasm and their dedication. The average filming was in an upstairs art classroom. Those are hand-painted behind the people being filmed. We made pieces of paper with just these washes of color. So if you were to look more closely, you'll see there's brown behind one guy and there's blue behind another. And then later on, the brown piece of paper shows up again. Fortunately, it goes by fast enough and there was enough. And so I'm sitting in a chair chatting. Kai has the, is on the camera over my shoulder. And we ended up with 27 hours of rough footage, all of which had to be viewed and evaluated. And there was so much good material that when we were editing, we had this file where we said, it was called reluctant deletions or something like that, or painful decisions or something. It was like, they say creative people hate to make decisions because it's the yes or the no, but creative people see, oh, there's all these options in between. You can, you know, and, and so it's painful to do the yes or the no. And so it was incredibly difficult to take some of these precious scenes, but there was just one too many. And, okay, and the idea, well, we'll look at them later, was kind of comforting. And so anyway, for Kent, this movie has allowed him to go out into... What the the individuals that are, donate to the school. It's the exact inverse of every other school. Most schools, you have 30% that get tuition assistance and 74% that pays. This is exactly the opposite. And it's only through the generosity of many, many families that allows that to continue. And these are instructions that Sanchi said, no, you should really do it this way. And it's a challenge that they are faced with year after year. So anyway, anyone that wants to be um, associated with the school, I brought some information. There's some DVDs. There's only maybe 10 here. If you're interested, I'm welcome. you're welcome to have one. And I'll leave this information out. This is the little flyer on their annual fund. And then there's several issues of The Trumpet of the Swan, which comes out once or twice a year. And it's a, it's a very engaging newsletter about the school and the article about Kai is in the back and his accomplishments after going to film school. And, you know, Sanchi says if you have too much money, it's better to throw it out with both hands like water in a boat, you know. It's like, <laughs> it's almost a direct quote. It's pretty radical. So in the throwing process, I know Kent would appreciate anything that could go in that direction. Um, well, I appreciate very much seeing that again. Um, I think, uh, Don, I, I must have... Uh, uh, does that change a lot from when we saw it five years ago here? Mm, a little bit. If we, yeah, actually, it's much more polished. Than, yeah. Well, um, you know, I spent 27 years teaching at that school. Of course, the school was built on, originally it was ashram grounds. Later there was a, a separation at Sanchi's instruction, and the school now has its own land. It's next door to the ashram. But I lived at the ashram for uh, 
10 years before the school started, of course. So, you know, everything about the movie, it's where I was for more years than I care to remember. The places, uh, the buildings, everyone in it basically was an old friend of mine. So it's quite an experience for me. They tell me that uh, I'm supposed to do questions and answers tonight, and it's okay with me. I mean, I'll happily hear any questions. I can't guarantee the worth of the answers, but you take your chance on that, and uh, I will uh, do my best to um, give answers that are worthy of the questions. If anyone has any, if you don't have any, that's fine too. I'll <laughs> go to bed early. So if someone has a question, just uh, stand up, okay? And I'll repeat the question so we also can understand. I just wonder, after the Unity of Man conference, if you were successful with UNESCO and United Nations, <laughs> successful after the Unity of Man conference with UNESCO and United Nations. And United Nations. Able to right. Yeah, that's a very good question, and I was, you know, I don't know. You know, Master left the body six months later, and things sort of went into chaos for a while, and I don't know what happened to that. I, I mean, I obviously it didn't happen as far as. I don't know if any efforts were made even to do that. So it's a it's a very good question. The the unity of man, the people that put the conference together, there was another there was a conference held in New Mexico, some of you may remember, uh, in nineteen seventy five, a year later. It was in uh, the summer, which I attended and I know other other people also attended. And that was pretty successful. People came from India, including some of the people that had worked on the um, on the conference, the original conference. And Reno Serene, who had been Master Kripal's principal representative, was very active in that. And Yogi Bhajan, who played a very important part in the uh, original conference, was also active in that. Swami Premananda came from India, and other Indian holy men also came. Taiji was there, and a lot of people uh, from various groups came, and a lot of different representatives of religions. There were uh, what up here is called First Nation people, which in America we usually say Indians or Native Americans. They had a very active presence there. It was a, it was a good thing. And after that, there were some conferences held, but um, it kind of dwindled away. And I think part of it was because the satsangis tended to split into different groups, uh, following this or that person or following no person. And it was hard to be unified. And I think that that's a great shame. And it's part of the reason why that aspect of the Master's teaching kind of fell into... um, you know, people kind of forgot about it. Although I have to say that the, of course, the, there are several concepts that Master did at the end of his life, or the last few years of his life, I should say. 
certain concepts that turn up over and over again. One of them is the unity of man. Another is the spiritual revolution. Another is the new education. The Santvani school was started as a direct response to the idea of the new education, as um, Master had expressed it when he founded the Manavkendra school. And very early in the career, Kent Bicknell, the principal, he was at the Unity of Man conference, and after the conference, uh, he went up to Manavkendra and spent, uh, he had his wife Karen and their then son Chris, um, their other son Nick was not born yet, but Chris went up, he was five or six, and they went up and spent time at Mount of Kendra, and Kent spent a lot of time uh, observing the Mount of Kendra school, talking with its principal, Miss Sati, and many of the things that Santvani began doing was in direct response to what was being done at the Mount of Kendra school. So that particular part of Master's final, say, total vision, that did bear some fruition, although at one time we had hoped there would be many schools of that type. There used to be one here in this area. Judy Shannon was running it. Uh, There was one in Colorado. There was one in um, Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. But they didn't, none of them managed to make it for a very long time, which is kind of a shame, too. Uh, You know, it may be, I mean, first things first, and it's true that change has to come from within, Master used to say, he'd quote Malana Rumi, who in turn quoted the Quran, that God himself cannot change a man who does not want to change. And so it's, it's certainly true that for all of us, the change has to come from within, and then it proceeds outward from there. But it does seem that we could do better, and I include myself in that very much. Because, you know, it really is, I mean, Master used to say, someone asked Master once if the Kali Yuga was going to get any worse. And Master said, how much worse could it get? (laughs) There were terrible things happening then. Uh, The Bangladesh War had just happened where whole villages were found with leading people of the villages in piles of corpses, uh, which Master referred to specifically when he made that comment. But in terms of the whole idea of religions working together to promote the idea of, of faith and love and recognizing that, hey, we might not know everything. It may be that we can learn something from somebody else. That that's been largely forgotten by the world. I'm not speaking now of satsangis. I think the satsangis generally do remember it. But you, you look for it in vain. I mean, what g- grabs the headlines and the news programs and all that is all this other stuff. It's exactly what Master works so hard to counteract. And it's like, if we don't, if we who are his people don't show what we stand for, I guess, if we don't bravely take Master's banner, you could put it that way, and fly it, Uh, so that people know that not everybody thinks that unless you agree with me, you're going to hell, that kind of thing, then um, I don't know, you know, it's like, it's up to us. 
Tomorrow at satsang, I'm going to read the um, the final circular that Master issued in his life on on the unity of man. It was the last circular he sent out about two or three months before he died, and uh, it's very specific, you know, and very clear, and it makes correlations and um, shows us what what we ought to do. I think I read it last year too, um, but we can stand to hear it. Once a year, I think. <laughs> anyway. I want another question. Do you think that the Dalai Lama has somehow been able to inspire people to take up the cause of loving kindness is my religion and focusing very much on what Kripal Singh had initiated all the way back then? Yes. Um, I don't know if he ever was in contact with Kripal Singh but I think in, at least indirectly they were in contact. There was a Lama who was active at the Unity of Man conference, uh, Lama Kusha Pakula, who was a, a member of the Indian parliament also from the state of Ladakh, which is a Tibetan culture populated largely by Tibetan Buddhists. He worked with Master very closely. I do think the Dalai Lama, and I think other people too. I mean, the spiritual revolution is not the property of any group, including the disciples of any particular master. As Master says in the final circular, anyone who can take the banner and run, anyone can do it. And the Dalai Lama certainly has been doing it. And there are other people too, Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma, Nelson Mandela in South Africa, uh, I'm sure there are plenty of people that I'm not thinking of, but they have all contributed to the general idea. And there is a stream of that that is there. Desmond Tutu in South Africa is another one. Um, the ideas of nonviolence, of forgiveness, of not judging others because they're different than we are, those are powerful ideas. And there are people who are actively presenting them. But it does seem that there are very powerful forces working the other way also. And that worries me. Yeah. Russell, what is it about mankind that we get, we feel that we, our way is the best way, that there's no other way? Lack of humility. I mean, the quote that was at the end of the movie, you know, that we have something to learn from everyone. No one has been created for nothing. It's one of the greatest quotes of Master Kripal's that there is. And that's the, the idea in a nutshell. I mean, we've got something to learn from everyone. We can, we can learn something from people of other religions or people who think other things. Even uh, people who think things that we think are dead wrong, we can still... I'll tell you... When I was first initiated, I, got, I was very self-righteous, okay? A lot of people are when they're first on the path. I, I had been an evangelical Christian. I had sung many songs that we sang tonight, by the way, <laughs> which, was, which was a lot of fun, singing them again. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. I, I do remember that. Some of you may remember on the 77 tour, Sanchi used to have me sing a song. Uh, it was before I knew any bhajans, but he, he really wanted me to sing. I, God knows why. I, I have no idea why. And I sang a gospel song. Uh, I changed the words slightly. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. 
people used to call it Russell's Bhajan. <laughs> and uh, and I, Sanchi would call me, he would make me sing. I mean, he would, at satsang, when people had sung, before he started talk, he would say, he would point to me, Russell, sing. <laughs> and uh, I would sing it. Anyway, um, I was very self-righteous. I had this, this born-again Christian kind of, I mean, I, I still had that with me, you know, that way of thinking, even though I was dead against it in theory. And I was very new on the path. I was pretty young. I was 23 at the time when I was initiated. And I, of course, when, you know, I had changed a lot of my habits. I used to hang around in bars, things like that. And now I stopped doing that, although I didn't totally stop doing it for a while, which was unfortunate, but there it was. And I suddenly felt very superior to all the people that had been my friends that hadn't stopped doing that. Okay? I now knew better than they did. This is how I felt. So I, one night, I, I, this friend of mine, and we were very good friends and became even better friends later, but on this particular night, we were in, it was downtown Boston, and we were walking across the common. I was heading home. This guy really lit into me, and he was drunk, which was, of course, something that I had been many times. And... I was judging him for that, and I was feeling so superior. And then suddenly, as we were walking across the common, it hit every single word that he was saying was coming from Master. I, I knew it. You know, it was like it was, all the things he was saying was things I really needed to hear, and uh, it was hard. But you know, once it happened, I, I can be very, very wrong and heading totally in the wrong direction and then I can turn around fast that's that's a saving grace that Master has given me um, which has saved my life sometimes basically pretty much and before we reached the end across the common I understood that um, I had better pay attention to what he was saying and I thanked him and I, and I went on home and I never forgot it so that you know we do have something to learn from everybody even if they're dead wrong about most things, it doesn't mean that we can't learn from them. And when it comes to, it's like the idea that only one religion is acceptable to God is such an egotistical idea, you know? And it is a, satsangis apply it to the path. You know, what has to be done has to be done by everybody in that God... If according to the masters are correct, which I believe they are, God exists and he's within us and we have to make our way within and find him. And that's within our power to do that if we get some help. So that'll happen. But, you know, beyond that, uh, master has said many times that there's lots of ways to do a lot of things. I, I mean, I just have trouble with this. People, Sanchi has said, one of his bhajans, he wrote, um, I forget which one it is, but he's talking, it was addressed to the six, I think it's Osika. It's addressed to the the six, and he's talking, it was at a time when violent, militaristic six were, might have been the time of Mrs. Gandhi's assassination, which was very hard on him. And uh, there were other militant stuff going on too. I mean, the golden temple was being used to store... Uh, weapons and bullets and things like that. And 
you know, he's saying this is not what discipleship consists of. And, you know, many, in, in, again, in the Palace of Love, he says that we are ready to kill all of the people with God within them for the sake of our opinion, but we are not ready to serve them, the hungry gods moving on earth. So it's, it's a real thing that's happening, and I, it's just, it's like a disease that's spreading throughout every religion. It's like Master speaks in the in the remodeling of our destiny that I read earlier. He speaks about universalism, and that's what I tell people I am. You know, I'm a universalist. It has universalism has two aspects. You can you believe the first is you you believe that God's spoken through all religions, and that they all contain truth. And the second is that you believe that ultimately everyone will go back to Him. And uh, if you think about stories like uh, King Janak emptying hell, rescuing every single person in it, you understand how that can be. It's like, this is what God wants. And I mean, people use Jesus and Christ, Christianity, as an excuse to send 90% of mankind to hell, which... Is, is what, if you read theologian, I mean, Martin Luther and John Calvin, not to mention a number of popes and so forth, thought this. They actually thought about 10% of people will be saved. And you think, what kind of a God is this? You know, why worship him? He creates human beings so that 90% of them can be thrown into hell? You know, what are we, talk about a, a, a universe of the absurd. What a ridiculous universe that is. And I just don't know how serious people can think something like that and not understand that they're worshipping a demon if they're worshipping someone who would do that. And for what? You know, for having the wrong opinion about religious things? It blows my mind. And yet I used to believe it, so it's not a, a thing that I'm finding fault with other people. I mean, it was a huge problem to me to face up to that and to recognize that I couldn't believe it, even though, you know, I didn't want to leave that particular sect of Christianity, which I thought was identical with the teachings of Christ. I I think it is of the utmost importance that the um, teachings of Jesus, which are as high as any teachings ever have been, and are very directly aimed at the spiritual development of human beings, and are very clearly uh, reflect the teachings of the masters of all. I, I think it's of the utmost importance that this be known, and I'm, I'm going to try to to do that through writing, through maybe through media. I don't know. I've talked with Don about some ideas. One of the things that Master wanted done is one of the things that the resolutions talk about, and it's. You know, Christians have got to do it for Christianity. I mean, Muslims have to do it for Islam, Jews for Judaism, Hindus for Hinduism, and so forth. And all the religions contain the highest teachings, but they also contain a lot of other stuff too. And that's what it's important to to put emphasis on one and not on the other. We used to say, when I was at Harvard Divinity School, we used to say that, talking about the Bible, that everyone makes their own canon. Canon is a 
uh, is the body of accepted authoritative books or people or whatever. Um, usually we refer to the Old and New Testaments as the canons. And uh, the canonical books are the books that are in the Bible. We used to say everyone makes their own canon because the Bible contains all kinds of things. So you pick out, if you want to pick out, judge not others lest ye be judged, that's one thing. If you want to pick out um, any man with his testicles crushed can't be a priest, which is in the Bible, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, if that seems important to you, then uh, that's up to you. You know, you, you can pick that. And uh, uh, a lot of the stuff that's going on now, people are arguing about and becomes huge issues. And people define Christianity in terms of it as stuff that Jesus never even mentioned. I mean, he cared so much about it that he somehow forgot to ever talk about it at all. Yeah, I was going to say something else too, but it slipped my mind. Anyway, anyone else want to? Yeah. You, you mentioned the assassination of Indira Gandhi. Uh, and what, uh, what do you recall about the why this Gandhi suffered so much? Oh, because it caused tremendous uh, rioting in India, the Sikhs. Because the people who killed her were Sikhs, they were and they were bodyguards. She trusted them, and they she, they were supposed to guard her from harm. And instead, they shot her. It was like uh, Secret Service people assassinating the president, which thank God has not happened yet. But in the U.S., but um, so far they've always been true. But uh, who knows? Anyway, the, there was a tremendous outbreak of high crime and misdemeanors against the Sikhs. They were held responsible by many other people in India. And that meant that, uh, as Sanchi said in connection with that, and there was rioting in general, of course, there often is, uh, not only in India, but in lots of places. But um, this was pretty bad. And Sanchi said at that time, you know, that whenever anybody in this world is suffering and cries out for help to God, the God that hears them, that is active on their behalf, is the master. He's the one that's down here. And so that he has to respond to that. I mean, it may be totally inwardly, but, and this is another reason why universalism and the unity of man is so frightfully important because basically the master is responsible for every form of life on earth that looks to God and it is his responsibility to take care of those people and they don't all want to go back to God and they're not all initiated and they do belong to every possible religion they come from every possible country and belong to every possible race but the master loves them and he does take responsibility for them. And there's a, I mean, there's famous stories like this. There was, Master Kripal had a cook whom I knew. Uh, he was there on my first trip to India. He wasn't there after that, but he was a Nepalese man, a Gorkha. And he was called Gorkha, which is, a, which is an ethnic designation, but that's what he was called. And he worked for Master, and his story was remarkable. You know, Roussel Jacques told it in his book, Guru Dave, The Lord of Compassion. But Gorka was um, 
As a young boy, he used to see Sawan Singh within. He had no idea who he was, but Sawan Singh used to come before him holding a stick and telling him that he had to get up and meditate. And he would do it. And his mother would come in and find him sitting on the floor in the middle of the night and want to know what's going on. And he said, well, I got to or the old man with a stick will beat me. <laughs> now, of course, there was never any question of that, but uh, the kid didn't know it. Anyway, he became extremely, he went very far within. And during the Second World War, uh, and then uh, during the India-Pakistan business after the independence, Sawan Singh was, appeared to him constantly and had him do, he, he did all kinds, he rescued all kinds of people, and did all kinds of, of uh, reconnoitering, spying type work. It saved many, many, many lives. And this was all done uh, directly on Sawan Singh's instruction from within. He never met him physically. And after Sawan Singh left the body, Gorka, I think he knew that he had left. I think Sawan Singh told him that within. But he did, he was led to Kripal. And um, Kripal said to him, he found out who Sawan Singh was after he met Kripal. He saw his picture and, and so forth. And so he asked Kripal for initiation. And Kripal told him, why should I initiate you? Are you ready? And he ran off and was going to throw himself on the railroad tracks, but Master went and, and got him and, and didn't let him do that. He was It was like a final test or something. I don't know. Sometimes Masters do things like that, but they always um, never let any harm come. Anyway, um, Gorka worked for Master. But uh, after that, he did get initiated, and he worked for him. He was at Salon Ashram for a number of years. And as I said, I did see him there. So things like that, the masters have a lot of... Uh, even saying responsibility is doesn't cut it. It's, it is responsibility, but it's like, I have many sheep that are not of this pasture, as Jesus put it one time. It's like, we think we understand what they're doing. You know, I was with Kripal, I was like this a lot. I used to, and what is he doing with all this World Fellowship of Religion stuff? You know, what, why doesn't he spend more time with his disciples? In the 63 tour, he spent a lot of time uh, working on, from the, on the level of the World Fellowship of Religions. And I wanted him to uh, spend more time with me, basically. <laughs> and later on, I mean, in the 72 tour, you know, Yogi Bhajan was around, and I didn't like Yogi Bhajan much um, for no reason. I mean, I didn't know him, you know, but I didn't like him because he monopolized Master's <coughs> attention. I wanted me to get that attention, not Yogi Bhajan. Anyway, uh, there was a funny thing happened in Los Angeles. We went to Yogi Bhajan's place, and he and Master were sitting on a bed, brass bed, and a picture was taken of it. And um, somewhat later in Florida, I went up to see the master one time in his where he was in the hotel he was staying there. And Har Charan Singh, who was master's company master in the 72 tour, some of you remember, handed me a picture as I came in. And he said, Master wants you to publish this in Satsandesh. And I looked at the picture, and it was Master and Yogi Bhajan sitting on the bed. 
And I thought, okay. I said to Hart Charing, I put it in my pocket, and I thought, I'm never going to publish that one. <laughs> and just, just then, Master called me in. And I went in, and he was sitting there, and he was smiling, and he said, have you got something for me? And I thought the only thing I had that could was the picture. So I, I took it out and gave it to him, and he took it and smiled, and he signed it, Kripal Singh. And he handed it back to me, and he said, you will publish this in a magazine. <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah. I and I did. <laughs> uh, so anyway... Um, we don't understand what Master is doing. And he's doing, you know, a lot of things at once. But everything that he does is aimed at bringing... I mean, there is the Church Father Origen, whom some of you may have heard of, very interesting. There were two Church Fathers in Alexandria, Egypt, Clement of Alexandria and Origen. Clement was the teacher of Origen, and... Uh, they were there, this was in the beginning and middle of the third century, the 200s, pretty early on. And uh, they had a very powerful understanding of many things, an understanding of Christianity that most people have not had since. And Origen was later declared a heretic. Uh, Clement never was, but uh, he also uh, comes close to it. Origen was a universalist. And there have been, uh, among Christians, universalists, actually quite a few of them, and a lot of people think that St. Paul was a universalist. But Origen was very specifically, you know, he had a concept that he called the apocatastasis panton. It, I always have trouble with that in Greek. It means the restoration of all things. And the idea is that creation, which he viewed as cyclical, and he viewed people as having more than one opportunity, although whether he actually believed in physical reincarnation is sometimes argued. He did believe in the pre-existence of the soul, which means that the soul takes a body when it comes into the earth. And he taught that ultimately everyone would go back to God, including the devil. And this was what was made him be declared a heretic two or three hundred years later because no one could believe that the devil would be saved. But after all, as Origen argued, the devil was also came out of God. And if you read the Anurag Sagar, Kal was a beloved son of uh, the Satpurush who, you know, who did devotion so much so that uh, Satpurush gave him the three worlds. So it, it, there's a lot of stuff there that many people don't know about. And I think the restoration of all things. If you read in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus talks about the three lost things, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, the prodigal. Okay, the the lost sheep, you know, there were 99 sheep. There was a, there's a gospel song. There were 99 that were safely lay in the shelter of the fold, but there was one that was out there lost in the cold, something like that, which I used to sing. Um, 
99 sheep were safe, one was gone, and the owner, the farmer, could not rest until he had rescued, he found and rescued the sheep that was saved. Uh, He was glad the 99 were there, but his interest was in saving the one that was lost. Similarly, the lost coin, the woman had 10 coins, drachmas, valuable coins. She had nine of them okay, but she had lost one. And she would not rest until she had searched the whole house and found that lost coin. And, of course, the story of the prodigal son, the father is so happy to see the son back. There's a great, by the way, very great book by a Christian writer, Henry Nouwen, called The Return of the Prodigal Son, which goes into that story, and Rembrandt's painting, which is based on the, on the gospel story in great detail. It's very much worth reading. If you read those stories, you realize God wants everyone to come back to him. If he wants that to happen, who says it's not going to happen? And why on earth then should we talk about people going to hell? You know, at least, I mean, maybe for a while. I mean, purgatory is, it's the, it's the hopelessness, the not being, I mean, who can say, I mean... A lot of us are in hell from time to time, right? This world is not exactly paradise. And many, many people are suffering very much. But that doesn't mean they're going to suffer forever. And that God wants them to suffer forever. And like that. So...